And welcome back to The Word Encounter, episode 83. Yesterday we concluded with the book of Ezra, so today we're going to pick it up in the book of Nehemiah. Um, as far as the time frame is concerned, the events in Nehemiah take place about 12 to 13 years or so after Ezra. In fact, Ezra is still in the land in uh, Jerusalem, and we'll see that in our readings uh, probably tomorrow. Um, but we can say, I think that we can assume, we can surmise that uh, a lot of the success that Nehemiah uh, had met with was as a result of Ezra's preaching for 11, 12, 13 years in um, Jerusalem before Nehemiah had gotten there. And so we see that um, typically when it involves uh, matters of achievement and success, uh, normally these things don't uh, happen, they don't get accomplished totally and completely on our own. Uh, usually they are predecessors that go before us that we learn from, or maybe they've done some prep or groundwork for us or whatever. And so we always have to keep that in mind. We don't live in this world in isolation in a vacuum. Uh, we live amongst a bunch of other people, and a lot of things have gone on before us in order to lay the groundwork for the successes that we achieve. And so that needs to be acknowledged and, um, and recognized. And so <clears throat> time-wise, eh, this is about 445, 444, summer 446 B.C., somewhere in that vicinity. Again, it's about 11 to 12 to 13 years after Ezra had arrived in Jerusalem. So with that, let's proceed. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, um, it says, When I was uh, in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers arrived from the men of Judah, and, question, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived exile. And so, you know, the people had gone before him, and so uh, we find Nehemiah is curious about what's the state of my people in Judah. And in verse 3 it says, They said to me, a remnant in the province who arrived the exile, who survived the exile, are in trouble and in disgrace. Uh, Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. And so what I'm not uh, sure about is whether or not the wall had received any attention from the first or second wave of, uh, of immigrants from Babylon back to Jerusalem, because we find that um, uh, Zerubbabel was mainly concerned about uh, the temple, laying the foundation of the temple and whatnot. Ezra came in and was concerned about um, uh, basically the state of people's marriages and in some degree of rebuilding the city. But this is the first time we're hearing specifically about the wall. And so in verse 4 it says, um, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Uh, I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying uh, before the God of the heavens. I said, uh, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants and the Israelites. And so we find that Nehemiah, upon hearing uh, the condition of the people in the wall, he's going before the Lord, praying day and night. So obviously this is something that's heavy on his heart. He says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. And so he's not removing himself, you know, from the condition of the people. He's not just pointing to people and so and saying, you know, those, those sinful uh, Jews, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they just deserve what they get or whatever, or Lord, help those people that have gone against you. He's including himself in the number and saying, look, I and my father's family, we've all, we've all sinned. None of us can escape this. 
We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you, command your, what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. And so he's acknowledging that the Lord, you told us this is what would happen if we were unfaithful to us. You told us that you would scatter us amongst the people. And that's exactly what has taken place. In verse 9, he says, But if you return to me um, and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose to have my name dwell. And so he's saying, look, you know, this is exactly what has happened. You told us what the deal was. They'd be scattered amongst the people. Now they're all over the place. But it says that you'll bring them back, you know, to the city of your name, basically. And then uh, verse 10, it says, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of, our ser uh, and to that of your servants who delight uh, to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Now, this man he's talking about is the king, and that would be King Artaxerxes. And it says, at this time, I was the king's cupbearer. And so at this time, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. So what's a cupbearer? A cupbearer was responsible for serving the food and pouring the drink uh, of the king and his guests. And this was a very important role, only manned by the most trusted of people, because in that day, people were highly concerned with things like poisons and other things that people are trying to remove, remove them from the throne or kill them or whatever. And so the cupbearer's responsibility was to make sure that uh, the king's food and drink were pure, were clean. There were no impurities, nothing that would kill him, <laughs> you know. And I guess this would uh, accomplish by, you know, tasting stuff to make sure that it was, it was not contaminated. And so again, this was a, a high position. He was kind of the leader of the staff as well. And so, um, and so this was, again, a high and an honored position in a kingdom. And so it says in chapter 2, verse 1, During the month of uh, Nisan, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? Um, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And so the king is recognizing that something is off kilter with Nehemiah. Something's not right. And then he says, I was, over, uh, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king. And so, you know, I guess <laughs> Nehemiah knew what he was going to ask the king. And he wasn't really sure how the king was going to be um, or if the king was going to be receptive to this or harsh with him or whatever. And so it says he was overwhelmed with fear, but he did it anyway. And we'll find out what he did or what he asked. And that's what the definition of courage is. And so courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid, yet doing it anyway. And so, in fact, you cannot have courage without fear. Fear is a is a. Is a, is a necessity, is a, a necessary predecessor to courage. You have to have fear so that it can be overcome and do it, whatever it is anyway. And then that, uh, that applies to um, uh, the, the action of courage. That, that means that you are being courageous when you do that. And so we find that Nehemiah was being courageous. And so he asked the king, he says, first he says, may the king live forever. So, so first of all, he's going to preface this. And then he says, 
Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So now he's bringing the king up to speed on some things. Now remember, it was King Artaxerxes who wrote the letter for Ezra, you know, many years, you know, 12, 13 years prior. And so, um, so maybe the king had forgotten about Judah or, or wasn't getting updated on the progress or whatever. But anyway, Nehemiah is telling him the plight of the people. And then in verse 4, he says, Then the king asked me, What is your request? And then it says, So I prayed to God uh, of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. And so we notice, like I said before, that this is something that the king had funded with Ezra. So I, I'm just curious whether or not he was thinking, huh, I wonder what happened with Ezra and the money and the silver and gold and me and my counselors had given him or whatever. I'm, that's just me wondering. And then it says in verse 7, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter um, written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the um, temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. So we see that uh, Nehemiah requested basically similar things that the king had already given Ezra, you know, 12 years prior. And so... Um, that apparently this was nothing new, uh, you know, for the king to consider. And he did it. And he did just like he did with Ezra, although Ezra did not ask. The king just uh, basically said, this is what I'm hearing, the, you know, God tell me to do for you. In this case, Nehemiah is asking, but the king is granting his request. And then in verse 9, he says, I went to the governors of the region west of the, uh, uh, west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent officers and infantry and cavalry with me. And so we see here's another slight difference between Nehemiah's journey. And so again, so this is the third trip um, to Jerusalem. And it's not clear to me whether or not there were people that went with Nehemiah uh, in immigration waves that went with Zerubbabel and then went with Ezra. And so I don't know if, if Nehemiah is going with a, uh, a caravan of people or if it's just him and a few people. I don't know. And so anyway, it says that uh, uh, infantry and cavalry have, have gone with him. Again, this is another difference between Ezra. So Ezra didn't want to ask for this because he had told the king about his God. And so they depended on God for their protection in their journey. Uh, but in this case, the army or some components of the army went with Nehemiah. And so it says in verse 10, when uh, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard, uh, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. And so we see these two individuals, and these apparently are not Jews, but they live in the region. I don't know if they live in Jerusalem or somewhere in Judah, but they heard about what the situation was going on, and that um, Nehemiah was coming to prosper the Jews, and they were not happy. And so then, um, and so then the word says that, uh, you know, after Nehemiah had arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, he says he got up in the middle of the night, took a few men with him. And it says in verse 13, I went out at night through the valley gate towards uh, the serpent well and the dung gate, the dung gate. 
And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And so he's going out in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want people to know what his mission is. And so he went out to inspect things. It says in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So he hadn't even told the people who would be doing the work of the reconstruction of the wall why he was there. And so uh, obviously the officials didn't know either. Verse 17, so I said to them, um, you see the trouble we are in. Uh, so he said to the, you know, he said to the Jews, priests, nobles, and officials, and whatnot. He says, "You see, uh, the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's wall, so that we will no longer be a disgrace." And so, <clears throat> I believe, uh, you know, I think a wall was kind of a sign of the strength of a city. And so, if the city had a, a big, strong wall, wall around it, then it was a sign of. Um, you know, prosperity of well of well being and this that and other. If the city had a broken down wall on it around it, then it was a sign of a city in trouble. And um and so this they call this the, the they call the condition of the wall of uh, Jerusalem a disgrace for Jerusalem. And so in verse eighteen it says, "I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me and what the king had said to me." And so then all the people said, "Well, okay, cool. Let's start rebuilding." And so again, I think we have to give some credit here to Ezra because he had been in the land preaching uh, God's word and whatnot. And so uh, we see in verse 19, it says, when uh, uh, Sambalat and Tobiah and um, Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised, the, and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so they're making stuff up because for whatever reason, they hate these people. They don't like them. They don't want to see them prosper. And so then they're mocking them as they're uh, uh, starting, the, initiating the rebuild of the wall. And they say, well, what are you doing anyway? Are you rebelling against the king? You know, I think they're trying to instill fear and whatnot in the people and to discourage them. So we move on to chapter three. And in chapter three, what happens is we have a breakdown of all of the families and who gets assigned to what wall and, and whatnot and, and what gates. And so who was rebuilding the fish gate, the valley gate, the old gate, you know, who was, um, who was looking at the water gate, you know, the horse gate, who was at what sections of the wall. And so it gets into a little detail with regard to who's doing what in the wall rebuild project. So let's go on to chapter four. And so in chapter four and verse one, it says, when Sambalot heard, uh, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these uh, pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt, off these burnt stones back to life uh, from the mounds of rubble? And so he's mocking them, but he's concerned in the back of his head because he doesn't want this to happen. And so... <clears throat> It says in verse four, four, it says, listen, our God, uh, listen, our God. So this is Nehemiah talking. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plundered to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. And so they're talking all kind of stuff. And people, the Jews that are rebuilding are hearing this. And, and, and so it's having some effect on them. In verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. 
And so, you know, we know that the people were hearing stuff and maybe also it was motivating them what these negative words were saying. So let's talk about some specifics of this wall. And so it seems like, as I did a little research, that there's some disputing with regard to what, uh, what the details of the wall are about. But from what I, what I was able to ascertain, it seems like that the wall in its total length was about two and a half miles long, about 40 feet high, and about eight feet wide. And so if you think about it, two and a half miles and 40 feet high, you know, take a basketball uh, uh, rim that's 10 feet off the ground, so it's four times that off the ground, and almost a basketball height in width. And so this is a pretty substantial wall, which means this is a pretty substantial project that's going to require a lot of people. And, and so we, we will see that um, Nehemiah was able to recruit people from all over Judah, you know, to come to Jerusalem to help. And so, again, I think we have to attribute this to the effectiveness of Ezra's preaching and teaching uh, in the prior decade before Nehemiah had arrived. And so... <clears throat> It says that in verse 7, when Sambalat, uh, Tobiah, uh, and the Arab Ammonites uh, heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. And so we find out that first, you know, that they were like mocking the Jews and this, that, and the other, but progress is being made and, and they have closed the wall now. Now it's not up to the height it needs to be, but they have closed it off and so they became furious. It says they all plotted. Um, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. And then it says in verse eleven, and our enemies said they won't realize until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. And so they had planned to infiltrate the workers to become part of them and then to kill them so that the work would stop. <clears throat> And so uh, Nehemiah's reaction in verse 13 says, So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And it says in verse 15, When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, uh, shields, bows, and, and armor. And so it became known to the enemies that, oh, they're starting to arm themselves and whatnot. The plan was discovered, so the plan was thwarted. And so um, it says that the, uh, what is this, verse 17, the, la the laborers who carried the loads, the laborers who carried the loads worked out or worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Up with the others. So it's like they may have a shovel in one hand or a hammer in one hand and a weapon in the other. And so, in other words, they were prepared. You know, they weren't going to uh, just go into this thing blind and, 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 and not realize that they had to defend themselves. And so it says, um, each of the builders had a sword uh, strapped around his waist while he was building. So all the men, they all had weapons with them as well as their tools of building or rebuilding the wall. And it says in verse 22, at that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants and the men of the guard uh, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. We carried um, each carried his weapon even when bathing. <laughs> so even when they were washing, they had their weapons on them. So they were always prepared 
for what might happen with regard to the enemies trying to stop them doing their work. And so with that, we're going to break it off today. We'll pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 5 tomorrow. Everybody have a blessed day. Bye-bye now.